So we ought to obey God rather than man. And if, if so we ought to obey the laws of the land as long as they don't violate God's laws. As soon as they violate God's laws, that's where we, we uh, depart. And the disciples did that. They were commanded, do not go out and speak about Jesus anymore, remember? And what happened? What did they do? Immediately. <laughs> yeah, the very thing they were told not to do. They went out and they did it. Why? Because they were violating. They, that law they could not keep. If they kept that law, then um, they would be violating God's law. So they, they quickly obeyed God's law. It's like a woman who's under the husband's authority. Suppose the husband says, you cannot believe in Christ. You know, or you cannot you know, worship the Lord. Now, she doesn't have to obey her husband in that area. She, she, she is personally responsible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter um, what her husband says. She is responsible to Christ. So she would not obey that command. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure she wouldn't anyway. <laughs> but, but let's look at this. Um, there's a scripture. Well, we read the one in Galatians. The one in Galatians. So you asked the question about the law. So we're just going to give a brief synopsis on what the law is all about. Uh, Galatians is a good book. Oh, that's in uh, Timothy. Yeah, I'll, we'll come to that one too. Yeah. That, that is a good one. Because the law is not made for a righteous man. So in Galatians chapter 3, and here's an interesting verse. You, you, you might look for something that says exactly what you're looking for to say, but really the Bible may just say it and you might just be reading right over it. Right? So in Galatians 3, look at verse, uh, I think it's 10. Wait a minute. Let's read the whole thing because I'm, I'm not finding it. 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, this is 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. There it is. There's the scripture that you really want to focus on. Everything written in the book of the law. So does, does that include some of the law or part of the law? Is that all the law? Right. And and actually, the uh, I think when you read it in the King James, it says the whole law. Okay, so cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all the things written in the whole law to do them, or something like that. But here it is, right here, does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So that here it is. Now, if a person is trying to be justified by God, that means he's trying to obey the law. What part do you think he's trying to obey? The moral part, especially, right? So he's trying to be right with God because and he, he's keeping this law and he thinks because he's doing that, he's going to be right with God. So Paul is telling people that nobody can be righteous before God by doing what the law says. That's the first thing right there. So here it is, the whole law right there. And, and is there any question about any division? No, no. There's basically... Everything written in the book of the law. You're under, if you're under the law as a rule of life, then you're under the whole law. Not part of it, but all of it. So if the, if the law is done away, not part of it is done away. The whole thing is done away. So then, just understanding that, 
And uh, we can go to Romans, right? Romans, there's a couple chapters in Romans. Cha Romans chapter 9 uh, is a good thought. Romans 9. And look at verse 30. Romans 9.30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? Just imagine the Gentiles obtained the righteousness. <laughs> That's unbelievable to the Jewish mind. Okay. So now, of course, for us reading that, of course, it's fine that we got righteousness. But to the Jew, it's like, how can you say a Gentile can be righteous? He doesn't even have the law. He doesn't even know the law. And you're saying that he's right with God? If anybody's right with God, it's certainly not him. It's me. That's what they're thinking. So Paul's saying the Jews pursued but, and have not obtained it. Because how did they pursue it? By keeping the law, being very meticulous, very careful to keep the law. right? But it is by faith. Verse uh, 31. But Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, has not attained to it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith but as if it were works. Okay. They, they stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in, in him, Christ, will never be put to shame. So this is really the story right there played out for you. Why did the Israel fail? It's because they pursued righteousness by means of the law. The law was never given for the purpose of salvation or attaining salvation. That was never the purpose for the law. So when Paul says, therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh should be justified in his sight, he's saying that to the whole world. He's saying that to the Jewish world. He's saying that to the Gentile world. But really, he's speaking to the Jew. Because you've got to remember, why, well, first of all, why will nobody be justified in his sight by observing the law? Why? Because of the sin nature. Right? In Romans chapter 3, right? in Romans chapter 3, that's the whole subject. There's none righteous, no, not one. They have altogether become unprofitable. They have altogether become worthless. There's none who do good, not even one. And then it goes down and talks about how their tongues practice deceit. The poison of asps is in their lips, right? Or vipers. And, and then it goes down and says later, therefore, because of this, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Well, when, when was that verse, all those verses written about, the, about man? Way back in Psalms. Right? Paul is only quoting from a psalm that was given. So Israel should have known that righteousness cannot come by the law. They should have known that salvation is not by the law. It is by faith. But yet, they stumbled over that whole Christ-faith thing. They would not believe in Christ. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So this is important when we say there's no one who's going to be declared righteous by keeping the law, then right there it tells us that the law has nothing whatever to do with salvation at all. No. Mm -hmm. It's um, that no one could keep the law even if they are uh, no, no, no human being could keep the law from the time they wake up in the morning to the time they go to sleep. Somewhere along the line why? Why would they break it? Why do you think that? Because it's a sin, it's a sin nature. 
There you go. So, so even before they try, they already fail because they got a sin nature. So when God says there's none righteous, you can't change that. You know, you, you might say, well, uh, you haven't seen what I've done. You haven't seen my righteousness, God. But God is already telling you from way back in the Old Testament, there's none righteous. In other words, not even one. No person has ever, in Adam, has ever met the standard of God. Not one. So, since that's the case, that's why no flesh will be justified in your sight. By the law, by looking at the law, you're supposed to know that you have sin. That's what you're supposed to see. But some people look at the law and what do they come away with? Man, I'm sure obeying that one. Boy, I'm, I'm really doing this one. And they start patting themselves on the back. And then they start judging other people. Oh, he's not doing it. Dwight, he's not doing it. You need to get busy. Right? That's how they look at it. So now really, the law reveals sin. If, it, if we allow the Holy Spirit it's to, to do its work in our heart, He'll bring us to the point where we are on our knees and say, what a wretched man I am. Who can deliver me? That's where it should bring us. That's why it's called the ministry of death. It's supposed to show us, lead us to the place that now I understand I'm dead before God. Or the ministry of condemnation. Now I understand I'm condemned. So a person, it doesn't depend on what a person does. See, and then we go to Romans 10, 1, where we are. We were just in 9, and well, we were in 3. But go back to 10 now. Brother, brothers, this is 10, 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for, is, for the Israelites is that they may be saved. All that keeping the law, all that meticulous working hard, and they're lost. They're lost. He's saying, I want to get them saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. They are really chasing God down. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. What knowledge is that? The knowledge that we just went over. About how the sin nature is a problem. And the, nobody can keep the law and be righteous. It's impossible. They should have just looked at their scriptures and they would have known. right? Just like we know. They had the same scriptures. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. What's that imputed righteousness? It's a foreign righteousness. It's not righteousness that we generated because we did good. It's a righteousness that God simply imputes to us. Abraham had it. We're getting ready to read in Romans 4 what he did. This is his testimony. Right? That comes from God. And what did they do? They sought to establish their own. So if you reject the imputed righteousness, what are you left with? Your own righteousness. Your own goodness. So that's why you have all those people at the last judgment standing before God. And what are they trying to show God? Look, I'm good. I've been in this religion for 30 years. You ought to put me in here. So what's God going to say to them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me. I never even knew you. You don't have the righteousness of Christ. So um, Romans 4. The law has nothing whatever to do with salvation. Nothing. And this is important for us to make sure we understand. If a person is trying to use the law in some kind of way, well, you don't even need the law. And you can be saved. It had nothing to do with salvation in the first place. So let's say a person is depending on the law. And they say, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. Really? Really? What happened before the Ten Commandments came? Were people being saved? See, I like somebody, some people, I grew up in, as an Adventist, and what we say was, well, the Ten Commandments were in the Garden of Eden. It just didn't say it. Oh. Well, 
Oh, really? It, it was there? Where's it saying? It doesn't say anything about the Ten Commandments in the Garden of Eden. It's carved in a little heart on a tree. Carved with the finger of God. There was no... It wasn't. And in fact, it's the opposite. God says, those who are without the law, from Adam to Moses, who did not have the law. It says it. So now, why are we going to assume that they had the law when God said they didn't have the law? It's just fighting against something that you know you can't win. You can't win. So, so here, watch this. Romans four. This is what what it says. Just just so we know, we don't we want to settle the matter because everybody's running around talking about the law. Believe me. So, verse twelve. Well, no, let's go to verse six. Ten. What is it? Um, uh, wait a minute. Oh, here. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Is this blessedness? What blessedness? Well, the blessedness is where David, he's talking in 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That's, um, that's crazy. For the Jew, how can that possibly be? How can God credit you righteousness and you didn't do anything? That doesn't make sense to the Jews, mind. So, so, verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Is it only for the Jews? Well, it doesn't even make sense already, right? I don't even have to finish this. You guys already know the answer. Is this, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? Right? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And why is that important? Why would that be important? Because Abraham wasn't a Jew until he was circumcised. Right. The, Jew, the circumcision is the sign of the covenant that you now belong to God in this special relationship. You're a Gentile. You're still a Gentile. So the points Abraham's, uh, Paul's making here is that Abraham was justified by faith and imputed the righteousness of God before he was a Jew. No law. In fact, when did the law come? 400 and some years after Abraham, right? 430 years, says Galatians. The law came later. Even though Abraham was still a Jew, right? Uh, but he was a Gentile before he was a Jew. And he was saved before he was a Jew. Before there was a law, period. So now, does the law, does any salvation have to do with any law? The Mosaic, not any. Not any. This, is, this verse confirms it. So then it says it, let's finish it. And he received the sign, this is verse 11, the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had. He already had it by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He was a Gentile and saved. So then, he is the father of all who believe. All who believe. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. That's why we call him Father Abraham. Because it is. He is an example of somebody who was a Jew and a Gentile. And, and he believed in Christ as a Gentile. So we know that salvation is the same in all dispensations, all ages. It does not change. It's always a Simply by faith. It can never be by works. If it were by works in any age, if it were, then guess what? God would not be righteous. We, we have the same God, even though He administers different ways. We have a different way of life, 
But when it comes to salvation, which is being right with God, he cannot change. Because now you're talking about a violation of his essence, his righteousness. And he will never violate his righteousness. So just imagine if, like we're talking about now, God accepts. He does not accept any works for salvation. That, that is not even the basis for how a person is saved. But then we say, yeah, but in the Old Testament, they had to have salvation by works. Just imagine if we said that. Is that consistent? We know who says that, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, why is that not consistent? Why? It says God changes. It says He changes, but it says on the one hand, He accepts works from men's sin nature. And on the other hand, He says, I reject works from men's sin nature. Wait a minute. What's the difference? You mean the difference is just because Christ came and died? Well, even though Christ came and died, God still will not accept any works from our sin nature. So what's, when he says there is none righteous, not even one, that spans from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same in every dispensation. Salvation, it, it, it can never change because God is the one who saves us and he's, his standards can never change. If they could, maybe Christ doesn't have to come. Maybe he never needed to come to the cross because God could just change and say, well, we're going to make it salvation by works in this dispensation. And if it was by works, right, did they need Christ? No. <laughs> That's what Galatians says. If righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died in vain for nothing. Because God would have said, okay, well, there is another way. right? Christ isn't the only way to God. So then let's take that other way. God would have said, everybody will have to do works to be saved. I think a lot of people would be a lot more satisfied <laughs> if they could just do works. Don't you? That's what they think most of them think it works. I mean, they fight you so hard on this. You think, well, if that's the way you want to have your salvation, go ahead. Why would you want to have a salvation based on works? Why would you want that? So you finally show them all these scriptures and they say, okay, okay, it's grace. You would think they'd be happy. Right, but they're not happy. What they really want is to have their sin nature satisfied, because the sin nature wants to do something for God. Really, the sin nature deceives us into thinking that we can do something righteous, and we can't. So, when we think about the law, let's just dispense with the whole thing. Can you be? And then there's, then there's, obviously, here's a good one, Romans seven. Oh boy, we're going to stop and and five minutes because then we're going to start talking about another subject. In Romans 7 watch this this is interesting. This is what God did for us in this age. Really it starts in Romans 6 but it, it spans all the way to 7. So Romans 7 1 says, Do you not know brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law they know the law that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives for example by the law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay? Now, let's talk about the players here. We have three players. We have the man, the woman, and the law. Who are the players? We've gone over this before. That's the only reason I'm, I'm man, stopping. Man, woman, and the law. Okay. Now, who, what, what do those players represent? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jewel. I just had to say that. <laughs> that was a, okay. The man is sin nature. 
The man is a sin nature. The woman is us. Mm -hmm. And the law is it's the law. The law. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, and what? And why does we say the law is the law? Because the law stands over that relationship, which is the man and the woman, and it has authority. It rules over that relationship. I mean, what What does the law say to that relationship? Condemned. It looks at the man who is the sin nature. It looks at the woman who is bound to the man, remember, her husband, and, and the woman has is under the authority of her husband. Isn't that right? That's the way it is. As long as the, you know, they're alive, she's under the authority. Just like the sin nature rules over us when we're in Adam. That's the analogy. Now, how do we get out of that relationship? How can we get out of the, re the sin nature relationship? Somebody got to die. That's the only way. And that's what happens here. Watch. <clears throat> but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That's the only way you can get out of marriage, right there. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is not called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Now, so the death here happened to us, where our sin nature... We're severed from who we are. We're no longer associated with the sin nature anymore. We die to the law. We die. And now, we can be released from the sin nature. Now, what can the law say to us now? If anything, the law says, great, because we're married to Christ. Now, Christ is absolute righteousness. That's our husband. We're married to him, and remember, just like we were characterized by the husband before, the sin nature, that's why the law looked at us and said, condemned. It didn't matter who we were. Same woman that was married to the law is the same woman who's married to Christ. And, and so, is there a problem with us? Remember we talked about that whole thing? Are we corrupt? When we're born, is something wrong with our souls? Or is it the sin nature? It's the sin nature. That's the problem with nothing wrong with you other than the sin nature. If God were to remove the sin nature from you right now, first of all, we probably wouldn't know you. Because <laughs> we, we look at each other and we look at each other based on distinctions. That's how we do it. No, I'm, that's not absolutely true. But if we remove the sin nature, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. It's going to be us minus the sin nature. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you except that you were born with an old sin nature. And all the things we do, all the, the sins, the evil that we produce, the human good, it all is a result of that sin nature. Pull that sin nature away and we can perform righteousness. We'll be married to Christ and we'll be living according to the dictates of, of righteousness. So what you're saying is that when you pull the sin nature away, when I look at you, I can only say, well, only good things. I look at everything that you do is good. Yeah, because, well, in, in that sense, yes, because um, because I will, my new nature, I will function according to my new nature. Actually, I'm already not in my sin nature anymore. I, I only have one nature. You can only have one nature at a time. Now, so, so you might say, well, wait a minute, don't we still sin? Don't we still um, yield to the sin nature? Can't we? And yielding to the sin nature is sin. But in, in reality, God has taken you out of the sin nature. That is not who you are anymore. So people walk around and say, yeah, 
I'm saved, but I still have a sin nature. That's not correct, is it? Because really, if you're saved, that God took you out of the sin nature. That is not your nature anymore. Your new nature is created after righteousness and holiness. Now, you still have. I always say the sin nature is still in arm's reach of you, which means it can still tempt you. It can still bid you to come, and you may still do it, but it is called sin. And it is not the same relationship that you had before with the sin nature. You can never have that same relationship. Want to see it? <laughs> Romans 6 okay Romans 6 verse 1 <laughs> alright Romans 6 1 what shall we say then shall we go on sinning that grace may increase and suppose we don't know what he's talking about. Maybe I don't understand the question. What do you mean go on sinning that grace may increase? Well, we know he's coming from the previous verse, verse 520. If you look up, you'll see the law was added. The law was added. That's the Mosaic law, right? So that the, the trespass, the sin, might increase. In other words, be more manifest, right? But, uh, so that, but where sin increased... Grace increased all the more. So this is the thought, right? So no matter how much the sin nature can produce, grace can produce more, and then some more on top of that. Okay. Super, it superabounds over the sin nature. So that just as sin has reigned in death, and, and it completely reigned over you in death, there were no exceptions. There, there was no lack of, you know, or, or uh, lapses in the sin nature's reign. You didn't just all of a sudden decide, you know, I'm under the sin nature sometimes and not other times. It completely ruled over you. Right? So also, grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the case. If you're in grace, if you're under grace, and in Christ, grace is on the throne, ruling over you. Can sin ever defeat grace? It's impossible. It cannot. And we know the reasons why, don't we? So let's see in verse 6-1, Paul plays the other side of the fence. He says, what shall we say then? Say then to what he just said. Okay. Shall we go on sinning? Now when he says go on sinning, he's saying, the question is, shall we continue to maintain the same relationship that we have with the sin nature prior? I mean, after we're saved. Can we do that? Right. You cannot. And this is what the answer is. It's, the answer is not that you should not. See, because if it were you should not, now that would be religious. That would be to say, you need to make sure you don't do this. But that is not the answer. The answer is, watch what the answer is. By no means. First of all, you got wrong thinking. You're off on the wrong track. And he, Paul, he built this straw man in the first place so that he could tear him down. Right? By no means. We died to sin. Now, there's no you are dead to sin that's it and what does dead to sin mean? separated from the sin nature that's a fact it's a fact now watch what he says in the next phrase how can we live in it any longer it's impossible you cannot live in the sin nature even if you want to even if you say something ridiculous like he, like he just mentioned here which was Shall we go on indulging in the sin nature like we did before? 
<laughs> Why not? Grace can just continue to create, increase over us. No way. Wrong thinking. You cannot live in the sin nature anymore. It's absolute. It's almost as if a person was circumcised. And years later, he wants to put that back on. Can he do it? It's dead. Right? It's been judged. The sin nature has been judged. It cannot happen. It is absolutely impossible. Now, then he explains to you why. Or do you not know? In other words, it's possible that you might not know this. But all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live the new life. We call this retroactive position or truth. You ever heard that term? Theological term. Retroactive positional truth. You've heard the term positional truth, right? Well, you guys, <laughs> don't do me like that. <laughs> positional truth is to say, what is your position right now? Well, you are either in Christ or you are in Adam. Right? If your position is in Christ, right, that's the truth about you. So everything that's true of Christ is true of you. Christ is righteous, you're righteous. Christ is holy, you're holy. Christ is sanctified, you are sanctified. Now, I'm not talking about experientially. I'm talking positionally. Christ, so and everything that God does for us, positionally, He expects that we grow into it and walk according to it. So just like this, He's telling us, you're separated, you're dead to sin. You don't even know it. So is it an experience for these people? No, they didn't even know. But now, now that you know it, look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. So he's saying, now that you know the truth about yourself, start living according to it. Start thinking according to what I've done for you. So first thing I've done is I've done the hard work. Now, I'm, all it is is you and you've got to be enlightened and learn to live according to what I've done. So the retroactive positional truth is, just like we are identified with Adam, right? In, in a sense, it's retroactive because you're born Where's Adam? He died a long time ago. Right? But what does God do the moment you're born? He identifies you with Adam. He, so now you have Adam's life, which is a dead life. You have Adam's condemnation, the judgment he received. You sin just like Adam sinned, even though you haven't done anything. All have sinned. right? You receive a sin nature from Adam, just like Adam had. Everything that has is true of Adam is true of you. Your position in Adam is just that. As soon as you're in Christ, all those things in Adam are past. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new spiritual creation. It says the old things, what old things? What was true of Adam? Have passed. And or, or basically, the old things have lost their power, according to the Greek. New things have come. So, the old things in Adam have no more power over you anymore. The sin nature has been broken. Sin nature is like a bicycle, you know, with the chain. You know, you're riding down the road. And the sin nature is just cranking out, whatever, you know. And, and when you're saved, it's like God took off the chain. You can still go like that. But... 
It's no longer propelling you anywhere. God took it off. It's, he disabled the sin nature. That's, real, that's really where we are. So when we talk about, don't you know? Okay, well, maybe I didn't know. But understand that now that you're in Christ, this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. The moment we believe in Christ, He baptizes us. And when we get to this part, that's what we're going to cover in detail. The baptism of the Spirit. What does it do? It takes you out of Adam and identifies you now with Christ. Just like you are identified with Adam, everything that's true of Christ is true of you. You have Christ's life. You have His his um, uh, his righteousness. You have his destiny, right? You are predestined to be conformed into the very image of his son. You have his rewards. You even have an opportunity to, to be rewarded in the same. If you suffer with him, you shall also be glorified together with him. You have his inheritance. You are a son. He is a son. You have everything that Christ has. Right? Even the resurrection. We are raised and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are totally identified with Christ. That is deep to the point where when we understand this, you'll see why. Because it goes, everything that's true of Christ is true of us. And, and we want to make sure that we get to that point and really that's probably going to be the last one we cover. Because that's the, the most detailed. So, and, and, and uh, Colossians, I always give this verse, Colossians chapter 1 speaks of the baptism of the Spirit in another way. Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse... Oh, actually... Yeah, is it? Um, is it 2? I think it's 2. No, actually, wait a minute. No, it's one. Let me go back. Just hang on. No, actually, it's two. Colossians chapter two. We can start at verse oh, 11, maybe. In Him, Christ, you were also circumcised. Now, <laughs> wait a minute. Is that true? <laughs> no, no, it's not true. <laughs> in Him, you were also circumcised. In the putting off, excuse me, in the putting off of the sinful nature. Remember we, I gave you the analogy of the circumcision in, back in Romans? Here it is. This is where I get it from. You were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by with the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. So God cut you out of the sin nature. It was sin nature is also what's a, another term of the sin nature? The flesh. So God cut us out of the flesh. What does he do in circumcision? He cuts off the flesh of the foreskin. Right? I hope that's not too much for you guys. Right. Okay, and the, the extra. Well, you know what? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he did it. He circumcised us and he removed the flesh. There you go. Right? <laughs> okay. So that so that is the same thing he did with the sin nature, spiritually speaking. He circumcised us and it's called the circumcision of the heart. See, the heart is the real you. 
and he cut away the flesh from your heart. Remember, the sin nature dominated all that you did. So then let's, let's finish the verse out. He says, uh, not with a circumcision done with the hands of men, but the circumcision done by Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. See, that same baptism of the Spirit is what did it, right? And raised with him through, the, through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its, with its regulations that was against us, and it stood opposed to us. Remember Romans 7? The, the law looked over us and said, Condemn. I hate this relationship. So, so what, we're in Christ? That's canceled. The law can say nothing to Christ. Christ is absolutely righteous. In fact, Christ, that's where the law comes from, the righteousness of God. So then he nailed it to his cross. And so this, this is how we are in Christ. So when people say we're in Christ, they don't understand that what God did to get him there is called the baptism of the Spirit. That's the doctrine. So we've got 15 minutes. Shall we, shall we tackle the common and efficacious grace? We shall. Maybe we'll go 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Maybe we'll go all night. Alright? So no, we won't. Okay. Covenant. Okay, let's go to Genesis. Genesis. We're going to turn the corner. We can talk more about that later. Baptism of the Spirit. What a doctrine. At least, at least now when we cover it, we'll be more uh, aware of where we're going with it. You know, there's so much that it deals with. So Romans six, mm -mm. Genesis. Genesis six. Something didn't sound right about that. Genesis six. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, now obviously this is, you know, there's a whole lot in those two verses. We're not going to cover it all right now. But we're going to focus on this verse 3. As a result of that, the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Now what's, what's he talking about here? He's going to kill who? Man. In 120 years, is that he's going to? That's it. He's mortal. He's subject to death. You know what? I'm going to bring it on. Now, did man live 120 years back then? No. Longer, right? A lot longer than 120 years. Some people live 900, right? Enoch lived 300 and some years, and then God took him. So 120 is certainly not. That's certainly not a lot. But God is saying here, it is a probationary period that I'm giving man. And what is it? 120 years. That's it. Now watch, look at this. He's saying, my spirit will not contend. What does contend mean? Has anybody ever done a word study and look at the etymology of that word? Mangled. <laughs> to put up with. What does it say? <laughs> to put up with? Tolerate. Tolerate? Struggle against. Struggle against. 
I'm liking all those things, buddy. But there is, especially contend, but really, because the Holy Spirit contends with us, but this word really means to convince inside of man. Convict inside of man. So, if you look at that Hebrew word, that's what that translation actually is. And they translated fight because obviously man wasn't listening to what the Holy Spirit had to say. So it turns out to be a fight between God, the Holy Spirit, and man, the heart of man. Remember, they were evil. For he is mortal, his days will be 120 years. From that time, it was 120 years before God fought the flood. The Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth in those days and, after, and also afterward when the sons of men went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw, saw how great, this is verse 5, the wickedness on the earth had become had become as a result of Genesis 6. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And what does that mean? That means that the justice of God is responding to the wickedness of man. It doesn't mean that the Lord was sitting in heaven grieving. Right? This is an anthropopathism. Right? Language of accommodation. Actually, the word is nakam, which is to repent. The Bible says the Lord repented that he made man. That's not true. Not in the sense of, it does actually say it, but God cannot change his mind. He is immutable. So what does it mean? It means that it's language of accommodation to give us an understanding of how God was about ready to judge man. Suppose, you know, God, he doesn't have emotions like that, like we have, where he can be angry and jealous, like it says the Lord is a jealous God. Well, he tells us that jealousy is a sin. <laughs> well, he, can he be jealous and we cannot? No. So jealousy, what we understand is, it, again, language of accommodation. That is God coming down, condescending to us to show us a function of his justice. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so he was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Again, God was ready to judge man. Man had departed from his prescribed standard. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals, creatures and all uh, that move along the ground, birds of the air. Spirit was convincing inside of man and to do what? Turn the heart of man to Christ. What's the issue? Remember salvation is looking at Christ from the standpoint of the Old Testament which is to come. Christ was going to come as the Lamb of God. Like John the Baptist said Behold the Lamb of God. Why do you think God also wants to destroy the, the thou And when he says he repent that he may have made them, is he referring to them there in verse uh, 7? So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures, and all that move on the ground, birds of the air, for I am grieved that I made them. I think he's referring to man. Just I don't think the animals were um, necessarily seen in that sense. You know, I think it was more related to man. Now, God always... See... 
we have to look at this because really God has a different view of animals than what people have today. <laughs> you might not realize that, but he does. Today, people would say, oh, that's inhumane. You're going to kill the doggies? <laughs> Come on. Right? You're going to kill the nice little, you know, the pets? Yes. <laughs> he does. He, he doesn't look at animals as significant. Right? He uses animals for, he says, you can kill animals and eat them. Use them for food. Then he says, use them for sacrifices. God is the one who killed the first animals. Remember? With Adam and the woman. He killed them and he gave them clothing from animal skins. God does not have... It just makes sense in, in that he created all the animals and plants and everything for man to enjoy them. That's right. So if he's yeah. going to get rid of man, we're going to be other things. That's right. All, of, all that was given in garden uh, in Genesis. So, so we're going to come to that you should not even have animals. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, really. But just notice that God, just imagine all the lambs that had to be sacrificed. Just think about it. That's, to, to go to church was about death. That's what it was about. A, a priest was go killing. Just imagine if that was my job. <laughs> All day, I'm standing there killing animals, blood. I don't, I don't want to be a minister now. That can't be my gift. I wouldn't see all these theological students then. Right? So, so now, what we find is, I'm only saying this to say, no, the God's attitude to it, like these animal rights activists and all that. Ass, God doesn't hold their opinion. He doesn't. All you have to do is look in the Bible and see how He treats animals. He tells, it's, just, it's pretty simple. He says dogs aren't going to be saved. We already covered that. <laughs> All dogs are going to be outside, right? You were going to say that? Right, right. So we're kidding. We're kidding. We're kidding. It is okay to have a pet, isn't it? It's okay. We have one. Right. You are not sinning. At all. Bill's first. Okay. So, so now, all that to say, that the Holy Spirit was after man, even then. So it's the Holy Spirit's job, one of the Spirit's jobs, is to enlighten man to his true condition and to turn him to Christ. That's the job of the Spirit. Is that an important job? How important is that? And without that, Nobody can be saved. I mean, the Holy Spirit has to enlighten you. He has to show you what you're like and why you need salvation. Then He has to point you to Christ. And then after you believe in Christ, He makes, as it says, efficacious grace. He makes what you, that decision, He makes it effective. He gives you the power now to bring you through to salvation. The Holy Spirit does that. And that's important. He tried to do it to these men. Now, how many people were saved in this whole scenario? Eight people. Eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people were saved. That's it. So how successful was the Holy Spirit? Very. Good, good point. Yeah. You know why? Because that shows you that God will never trump our free will. Our free will, he, he will not make anybody come to Christ. He 
he tries. He tries. Now, you think these people, if they show up at the judgment, what, what can they possibly say? Can they say that, man, you know, we were born in Adam and we didn't really have a chance? Can they say that? Is that a legitimate beef that they can possibly have with God? Why not? Well, not yet. Not only because of the eight people, but that Holy Spirit witnessed inside them. Hundreds. And that was the probationary period. But you know what? Noah preached, right, for, for that long. He preached to those people as well. So that was another witness. So we have God, the Holy Spirit, convincing inside of man. We have Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for those years while he was building the ark. That was a testimony in and of itself. What do you mean you're building the ark? For what? <laughs> they laughed at him. They mocked him. Pretty much the same way people mock you when you tell them that salvation is by grace alone. Today. If you tell somebody you, you can't lose your salvation, what will they do? They will mock you. In fact, they will laugh at you. And they will say, is this foolishness what you're saying? It's the same thing they said to Noah. Noah was preaching the gospel by building an ark. He was being obedient to God. He was saved. And God told him, he says, you know what? There's going to be a flood. Noah believed it. He trusted in God. And sure enough, his works were evidence of what was in his heart. He built the ark. Suppose he believed in God. said, I believe you. But you know what? I'm not building that ark. It's going to be hard. Because people are going to be laughing at me. Suppose he was like that. He didn't. So here, so when we say common grace, it's common to everybody. You need common grace. You, there's no way. So that's the first scripture. Then we want to turn to the second scripture in John chapter 16. And you, you already know this passage. We're just going to cover it. Oh, we got a little bit of more time. We'll, we'll make sure we cover this. John chapter 16, verse 8. So now we're bringing us up to this time. And you will find in the Old Testament, also, there's a scripture in Acts chapter 7, where just before they stoned Stephen, they said, uh, uh, Stephen testified of them. He says, you do always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your forefathers did, so do you. Right. You resist the Holy Spirit. He's talking to those Jewish rulers who did not believe in Christ. They resisted the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we can know that not just from the, from before in Adam, the antediluvian world, but all throughout Israel, and in the 1400 and some years that they reigned, those leaders got most, Stephen is saying, you resist the Holy Spirit. Now, so, so that's common to everybody. Why, why they resist? That means the Holy Spirit was trying to get them to turn to Christ, to, to realize their true condition, and they would not. That's common grace. The enlightenment. So now, let's look at this John chapter 16, verse 8. It says, when he comes. Who comes? Muhammad? You sure? Because you know the Muslims say that this is Muhammad. When he comes, they, that's what they say, that's Muhammad. And I'm like, where do you get Muhammad from? <laughs> Where? Right? That's what they say. That's the prophet Muhammad. There's a lot of stir about Muhammad right now. Isn't it? 
You see, it's not like in the, the modern King James, it says, and when that one comes. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> yeah, they can attach that to anything they want. But we know who he is. He's the God, the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. When he comes, he will convict. Wow, guess what that word means? Convince inside. Just like the Hebrew word. He will convict the world. Who's the world? The globe or the people who are unsaved in the world. God so loved the world. Who, who did he love? The people in the world, right? Who were lost, estranged from him. Right? He loved them so much that he gave his only begotten son. Well, here the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts the world. Three things he does. Of guilt, with regard to sin, and righteousness, and judgment. Okay, that's verse 8. So why do we need different... I mean, why is this a new... How come he didn't do this in the Old Testament? Why not? Shouldn't he have? I mean, I didn't get this, the benefit of this, right? What's the purpose? How do we look at this? They did? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm asking these questions just to throw you. I want you to think according to what the scripture says. Yes, we covered. He did it in Genesis. He did it in Genesis. But guess what's happening here? New information. New information. What changed? What changed? Christ came. Right. Christ came. And he died and rose again. See, so now God actually, he, he paid the check. Remember, there was, he wrote a check to all those people in the Old Testament says, I'm going to, Christ is going to come pay for your sins. Well, he actually came and he paid for the sins of the world. And, and, and so, now we have new information. The Holy Spirit is not just convicting people to say, you must believe in the Messiah. Now, there's a name attached to, the, to who you have to believe in. So this is new information. Right? And that's why it says when he comes. Well, he's going to have a, new, a different ministry. It's the same type of ministry. He's still going to convict men. But now, he's going to tell them about Christ. Three things that he convicts them of. Let's see what they are. Uh, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9. In regard to sin. What category of sin is that? Because men do not believe in me. Rejection. Rejection of Christ. So is the Holy Spirit convicting people of alcoholism or drug addiction or <laughs> adultery or lying and stealing and all these different things? Is he doing that? Are preachers doing that? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> preachers are certainly doing that, aren't they? Because if you go to a lot of churches, don't they tell you... Man, you've got you've got to stop that drinking. You got to stop that carousing. You got to, and they go on and on, and they preach, and people are like, "Yeah, yeah, we do. We really <laughs> got to stop that." I know I got it. I can do better. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to just have more trust. And and really, who's con the Holy Spirit? That's not even his job. What's his job? He convicts of one sin, one sin, and that is the sin. Of rejecting Christ. That's the most important thing. Right? Suppose I could, I preached all those things and all of you stopped doing all those things. You still would be lost if you were lost, right? Should you be doing those things anyway? Oh, you shouldn't be doing those things. Those are wrong things. But that is not the job of the Holy Spirit. right? He doesn't work on minor things, right? He looks at a person and sees them sees the fruit off a tree. The Holy Spirit says, you know what? I'm going to deal with the whole tree. 
I'm going to deal with the fruit. What's that going to do? He's going to have fruit next season. I'm going to put an axe to the tree. I'm going to cut the whole thing down. So he deals with the most important thing. If you believe in Christ, guess what? God will do this thing for we, which we talked about, the baptism of the Spirit. He will cut you out of the sin nature. So you don't have to worry about the sin nature because God will fix it. He will, And then he will teach you how to walk in righteousness. Right now you can't do that because you're still bound to your sin nature. So then it says, of righteousness, and here's the category or of sin, because men do not believe it. That's the category of sin that Christ, uh, that the Holy Spirit convicts people of. Verse 10, in regard to righteousness, okay, righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Does anybody know what this means? Anybody know? And verse 10. In regard to... This is the second thing. Remember, he, he convicts us of sin, mm -hmm. of righteousness, and of judgment. Three things. The sin, we know what that's about. We just discussed. Of righteousness. What do you think that is? He's going to the Father. He will see me no more. That means that he'll be sitting on the right-hand side of the Father. Mm-hmm. Yep. So why is he going to convict the man of the Why is the Holy Spirit going to convict you of righteousness? in regard to that. Because Romans 3 says none righteous. Well wouldn't it be because now it has to be by well, because of faith that they have faith they won't see him. Aha uh -huh. I just well, knew I knew that was a tough question. <laughs> but go ahead. Actually because um, Jesus Christ is now providing a way to be righteous mm -hmm. by believing in him right. was never available before and the Holy Spirit is convicting people that this is the standard of righteousness. It is Christ. Christ came, He lived on this earth, and He produced a level of righteousness. He kept the law perfectly. And the fact that He died and was risen and to the right hand of God, the place of highest honor, He's a man, that's the, the standard of righteousness that God accepts. And the Holy Spirit is going to let people know that that is the only standard of righteousness that God will accept. He convicts people of that. And you need to know that. So he's convicting man of righteousness. And that's right. Because, and, and it cannot be changed. Christ is no longer here. He's already gone to heaven. It's never going to be changed. That is a fixed thing. When it says he's ascended in heaven, he's at the right hand of the Father, that means he's at the place of highest honor. He's the only man in heaven that God approves. Right? Well, obviously, he brought others. But, he was the first man. And everybody who was ever saved will be because of this one man. Just like everybody who was ever lost, right, is in that state because of what Adam did. Christ is the, is the last Adam. He is the standard of righteousness. That's why it says, when in Hebrews, it testifies of him, he loved righteousness. That's, when Christ walked this earth, that's what he loved. He loved to do the Father's will. So that's why... That standard of righteousness is important. What's going to happen at the last judgment? Remember? It's about righteousness. Those people are going to try to come in. Now, they're not in the book of life. They're not in the Lamb's book of life. That means they didn't believe in Christ. And so what are they trying to present? They're trying to present their works. They're saying, God, I'm righteous. God has already told them all their whole life that I will not accept any righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ. And then, what's the last one? 
judgment, right? And how does he explain judgment? Um, and in regard, verse 11, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Satan, right, is the enemy of God. And, and this whole, the Holy Spirit is letting you know that if you side with Satan, you will, the wrath of God will remain on you. There are people who are going to be lost. Satan, all his angels, they're part of those who are condemned and they will experience the lake of fire. If you side with them, if you reject Christ, right, you will also stand in the same judgment that Satan. Now, was the lake of fire prepared for man? No, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? So that's a testimony to man. But guess what's going to happen? At the end, if you read, man is also going to be thrown into the lake of fire. It's a place of judgment, eternal judgment. So, and, and what do we see in the gospel message? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He that believeth not, what, what's, what's, what happened? He condemned already. And the wrath of God remains on him. That wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness in man. And God will send all these men to the lake of fire. He will judge them. He, and the judgment is sure. Just as sure as we're telling you about salvation, he that hath the Son hath life. He does, who does not have the Son does not have life. And the wrath of God remains on him. So in the same breath, you're telling people the gospel, but then you're telling them also the alternative. Believe in Christ, you shall have eternal life. You don't believe in Christ, you will remain in a condemned state. So we can't have a gospel that's only love. You know, you know I want to sing, hold on. <laughs> Let me, but, but can we have a gospel that is just, it doesn't have the teeth the Holy Spirit convicts not only not to, that you must believe in Christ, but He tells you what the consequences are. And the true gospel will let people know why and what will happen if you do not believe in Christ. And it does. And it's straightforward. Some people don't like it. They say, oh, you're saying, I'm going to hell? You, don't, you mean, if I don't believe in Christ, I'm going to hell? The Bible says so. You have a choice. You don't have to go to hell. You can believe in Christ. On those TV shows, they're always trying to trap Christians, right? They're always trying to trap Christians. Just answer the question. It says, if you do not believe in Christ, you're going to the lake of fire. You have a choice. I don't, I don't want that. Well, you've chosen. <laughs> do they have a choice? Yes or no? Yeah. Right. If, I, if I say, you can leave this room, but you only can go through that door. You have a choice. You can either stay in the room, okay, <laughs> or go through the door. What's the? I mean, what's what's so hard about that? Oh, you're not giving people a choice. I gave you the choice. Go through the door, or stay in the room. A lot of people stay in the room. The room's on fire. <laughs> you want to stay in the room? You stay in the room. I'm going through the door. Right. So, so that's probably what we should we should tell the people when they ask us. And they try to embarrass us. Right? And Christians fall for it every time. It's like, well, I, I'm not trying to say that. Uh, no, tell the truth. What are we worried about? Right? <coughs> Answer all those questions. So, so of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, we got to close. Right? We'll close in the next five minutes. But 
Do you understand? Does everybody does anybody have any questions regarding of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? So if you give the gospel to somebody, you got to let them know what the consequences are. They do not believe. This, this Jesus? Man, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the whole Bible, doesn't he? Talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die. The smoke of their tongue. Well, that's revelation. <laughs> but Jesus talks a lot about hell. Okay. So... About judgment, judgment concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged. Mm -hmm. it, it, that's like to give us an understanding of kind of judgment he's referring to. That's why it's going to convict us of judgment. Yeah, because if you side with the ruler of this world, which is Satan, because really remember, Satan, who is the god of this world, the prince of this world, he tries to blind the minds of them who do not believe, mm -hmm. lest they should see the glorious gospel of Christ. And but notice. He blinds the minds of unbelievers who do not believe. So unbelievers had to have had the gospel preached to them and they rejected it. So what does Satan do? He doesn't make them so that they can't see the gospel. He makes them so that they are blind after they have rejected the gospel. He keeps them in the darkness by what we call smoke screens. And, and so that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and 4, by the way. So Satan is the ruler of this world. He's trying to turn people away from Christ. So if you side with him, if you listen to him, you will also suffer the same fate that he suffers. You will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, um, we, can, we can talk about Christ because Satan came to Christ and he told him, if you bow down before me, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Remember? I'll give them all to you. And Christ rejected Rejected. He, he would not take that route. But you know what? A lot of people are accepting Satan's offer. They're listening to what he has to say. And they're saying, you know what? We don't need Christ. We don't need to go through Christ. Remember, Christ had to go to the cross. And some people are saying, well, we don't need to worry about a Christ that has to go to the cross. I can do for God and he will respect me. Some people are very arrogant with God. Well, I tell you, I couldn't. I almost didn't know what to say to a person who told me one time. He says, "I don't need that. I'm already good." I said, "You're good, really? You really think you're good? You really think you're that good? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually good. I. You mean my motives are good? I couldn't believe it. I just almost didn't know what to say. <laughs> I said, "Boy, you just totally disregard what the testimony of Scripture is about." Of course, I tried to share with him, but he, he wouldn't have it. He says he doesn't need that. In fact, if God does not recognize his goodness, then he doesn't even want to go any place where God is. That's how arrogant he was. I'm not kidding. I was almost like, wow, I don't know what to say. This is a Jewish guy. His, his name, no, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> that wouldn't be nice. But really, I mean, this is a real story. He sat there and told me, looked me in the eye and told me that. And I almost didn't know what to say to him. Just all you know, we want to trust in what God has to say. And all we all we've done now, it, we've talked about common grace, and we've said how God, the Holy Spirit, enlightens us. And I was thinking, I was telling you, Dwight, one thing we we have to say is that all that Adam did for us, and he did a lot, right, to to put us behind the eight ball, right? He puts us. Now we start off 
we, we got up on the wrong side of the bed. And, and we stayed on the wrong side for our whole life until we met Christ. Not only that, the bed is against the wall. <laughs> and the bed is against the wall. We're between a rock and a hard place. There's no doubt about it. What Adam did was terrible. But guess what? Nope. The Bible never says that anybody will be lost because of Adam. Not one person will be lost because of what Adam did. Isn't that interesting? And we talk a lot about what Adam did, don't we? Adam, make sure you understand that Adam did this and it was Adam who did that and that's the reason why we sin and that's the reason why we're condemned and that's the reason why we, we um, uh, are judged by God. All these things, right? But in reality, even though that's true, God told us all that and He wants us to understand that so we can orient to who He is, to the reality of what happened. That's the truth. Really, we have to make sure we make decisions based on truth. What happens if we don't? We'll be divorced from reality. We'll be doing things and, and thinking of things that are really not based on the reality of God. So God has to make that clear to us that yeah, Adam did all that. But you know what? It's really still based on what you do with Christ. If you believe in Christ, you will have eternal life. If you do not believe in Christ, you will not see life, and the wrath of, wrath of God will remain on you. So, if that's true, we can't blame Adam when we get to the judgment seat. Say, so God, you know you put me in Adam, and you know you put you gave me a sin nature, and you know you gave me spiritual death. You can't say that, can you? You know why? Because the Holy Spirit and common grace enlightens every one of us to the true realities of and the true issues so that we can make an informed decision, an intelligent decision. Suppose you don't have a decision to make. Suppose you, 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 didn't, you never heard. You, then, then was it fair? Did the Holy Spirit do its job? Did He convince inside of you? you? You're saying that the Holy Spirit didn't. But when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, and if you stand on the wrong side, not the judgment, the great white throne judgment. You're going to know. I never read anywhere where somebody says back to God, uh, I don't understand, God. How could you condemn me? It says that they will be without excuse. That means that somebody did their job. The Holy Spirit enlightened them, and they cannot come back to God and say, Okay, God, I didn't get a fair shake. See, this whole thing has to demonstrate, and this is, we're going to close with this point, and, and, and otherwise we'll keep going. It's in Romans. <laughs> and did I say that before? Yeah. Once? Twice. Okay. <laughs> okay. In Romans 3, just remember this, and I used to read this and puzzle about it. Romans 3, 24. Let's start at 24. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement, propitiation, through faith in His blood. He did this. He did this to demonstrate His justice. Why does God need to demonstrate anything? Especially His justice. Well, yeah, he's, not only is He showing us He's showing angels and man that he is absolutely righteous, absolutely just. 
There's absolutely nothing that man could say to God. He, he does all of this in the open, not in secret. He does it, and he says that he might demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. So you can't. God, he's doing this so that people will, will not think that he is unfair. He's doing this so that people will turn and say, he is absolutely just. He's demonstrating it to them. Beyond any doubt, any reasonable doubt. So who is God's aid in this? It is God the Holy Spirit. It is this thing here, common and efficacious grace. That's how complete it is that God is going to make sure that everybody is enlightened so that they can have a full, a, 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 an intelligent decision about Christ. And, what a, and, and just imagine, we have the privilege of working together with God the Holy Spirit as co-workers, fellow workers, sharers together in the work of the gospel. That's the privilege we have. And boy, what joy it is to be able to share the good news with somebody. Somebody who's listening. <laughs> when they're fighting you, oh, it's not so good. But when they're listening, what joy it is. When they're just listening to the things and, and, and reading the scriptures and realizing it is in the Word. So we're going to have to close. Why don't we stand and uh, we're going to have a word of prayer. We'll continue with the next one. Now, common and efficacious grace we probably should deal with regeneration and we'll probably finish anything there's a couple more scriptures on common and efficacious grace yeah. we covered those two we should look at the one in Acts and a couple more so thank you guys for coming sorry I was late could not be avoided I would rather have been here trust me let's bow our heads and we'll close thank you Father for this opportunity again this week to come in the middle of the week to think about Christ. And as the Holy Spirit has led us to the mind of Christ and to explore the things that were freely given to us, we are marveling, Father, at your marvelous wisdom, your great understanding that you have just freely given to us as we read the Word. How breathtaking it is sometimes, Father, to look at the passages with such clarity that you've given us. And we know it is the Holy Spirit who has enlightened us, who teaches our spirits and makes these things real to us. Lord, we're so grateful for those who have taken time out of their day to come and to worship with us and to fellowship regarding the things that we are about to, to launch into. Making these things are reality. Making our calling and election sure is why we're here. We thank you, Father, and pray for Word is Truth Christian Church. We pray that the vision that we have established might continue. That each person would have it in their heart. That we would go out and, 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 and be able to, to witness as one man together and stand for the, for the gospel. And that we might speak it boldly and clearly as we ought to. So Lord, we pray for traveling mercies for those of us who will be traveling and pray that you will bring us back, Lord, so that we will continue to hunger and thirst after these things. For we ask it in the name of our precious Lord. He died for us. 
this in his name we pray amen